Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can take the Bible in the pew back in front of you, turn to page 811. We're going to be in verses 5 to 18. We've been a series called Sermon on the Mount, and today we're gonna focus on prayer and fasting. I will read verses five through 18. When we get to verse, the second part of verse nine, the famous Lord's Prayer, um, I will pause and we collectively as a church will recite the Lord's Prayer as a means to bring our attention and focus to the words. Matthew 6, verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Let's all recite it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others... If you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Talk about a heavy sentence or idea. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Some of you might be thinking, why didn't we see after verse 13 the famous phrase that Protestants typically know, right? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's because there are some transcripts of the original text, meaning um, the copies of the text that do not have that. And our ESV translators who put the ESV together um, thought it best to keep it out because there weren't as many manuscripts who had it in there. But, but the, the phrase is still all true, and the phrase is worthy to be recited. Um, this is an interesting passage where Jesus talks about 
um, fasting, and he talks about prayer. And I had a thought, an idea. Um, spouses, you, you guys, married couples, this will resonate more with you, but this also resonates with other people who are not married. Um, you've ever decided you were gonna go out with a group of people or with your spouse, you were gonna go out to eat, and you said, all right, let's, let's go out to eat, and one person says to the other, what do you want to eat? What are you in the mood for? And everybody knows the response. It's like, I don't know. What do you want? Or the response might be, I don't care. Pick something. Okay. Let's go to so-and-so. No, I don't want that. <laughs> so what do you want? I don't care. You pick. Okay, let's go to Chick-fil-A. No, I don't, I don't want Chick-fil-A. What do you want? I don't know. Okay, L let's go to Texas Roadhouse. Um, I hope to be telling that joke in 10 years. <laughs> let's go to Texas Roadhouse. No, I'm not in the mood. What? Are you... Crazy? So, so what do you want? I don't know. I don't care. You pick. That question is trivial, right? But there's some other questions that we internally ask ourselves concerning what we want, what we long for, right? They're, they're questions that we ask, you know, uh, I, I want to live in a certain type of house. And I want to live in this neighborhood, this community. Um, I want to be in this church. I want this church to look like this, right? We all have longings about things that are not really important and things that are important. And in our hearts and minds, we can all gauge what is important and what's not important. It's interesting that in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus asked a, a specific question to his disciples before he even starts meeting with them. And in, in certain translations that Jesus asked is in John chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus asked, um, what are you seeking? In the NIV, it's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses. Um, the NIV translates the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus says, what do you want? What do you want? Interesting enough, the, uh, the two disciples that Jesus is talking doesn't respond. In fact, John just says they follow him, and then eventually they end up following him to be part of his ministry. I think all of us have longings and desires. Each and every single one of us wants something. Each and every single one of us wants to experience something. Each and every single one of us has a desire in our hearts that informs our behavior and practices, right? Um, I've heard this phrase before, I don't know where I've heard it. It's not mine, but I'll, I'll take credit for it. The choices you make in life dictate the life you lead. And the choices that we make is predicated on what? On our desires, what we want. 
We make decisions, we behave in a certain way based on what we want, based on what we feel that informs our, our mind or, or things that inform us. We make those decisions. All of us want something. Um, I don't often recommend books. This is one book I would recommend for you to read. It's a book entitled, You Are What You Love. It's by James K.A. Smith. Listen to this quote from, from this book. This is what James says. Essentially, the, the, the essence of the book is um, you, what you desire and what you love. The thing that you hold tightly in your hand is going to be the thing that dictates your behavior and your habits. And you ought to be very careful what you hold in your hand to be primary in your life. Because if you hold that in your hand tightly, it's going to inform what you do and what you say. And this is what he says in his book. He says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, scripture counsels, now he's going to quote a Bible verse, above all else, guard your heart from everything you do from it flows from it. He goes on to say, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but informs our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. So, so James is saying in his book, right, that, that God's desire is to, to, to transform your heart and conform it to his person and his like. And then Jesus, in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, his desire is to show us the intent of our heart. Jesus, what he's after is your heart. He's not after your intellect. He doesn't care about what you think. He doesn't care about what you believe. He doesn't care about the little nuances of your life that you think are so special. What he wants from you is your heart. He wants to transform your heart because your heart is going to dictate your behavior. Your heart is going to dictate what you believe. And Jesus is showing us in this passage, he's showing his disciples that if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, true followers of Jesus Christ, then you are going to look like Jesus, you're going to talk like Jesus, and you're going to behave like Jesus. And notice what we see in the scriptures, that we are to be like Jesus, not like our favorite celebrity, not like our favorite pastor or preacher or teacher, not our favorite podcast person, not our favorite mentor that we have. We are to look, talk, feel, and think like Jesus. Because Jesus desires to what? Stir our affections towards himself. And he does that by the power of the Spirit through conforming us to the power and scripture So when Jesus is talking to us in this passage, he's asking us a simple question. What do you desire? When you pray, when you fast, or when you forgive, or when you give, 
What do you desire? Do you desire to commune with God, be with God, or do you desire to be seen and known by other people by how smart you are? To be seen and known by other people to show them how intellectually deaf you are with theology, theology and doctrine. Do you pray so that people will know how spiritual you are and how eloquent you are and how you know all the Bible verses and you know all the doctrines of grace and you eloquently tell everybody about it? Or do you, do you, do you, desire and long for to be with Jesus, like Jesus, to talk to Jesus? Do you long to see Jesus in your life and in your actions? What's the type of person you want to be? Do you want to be known by other people or do you want to be conformed like Jesus? So he's going to show us, right? He's going to tell us to the believers. He's going to show us, right, that the heart's desire of wicked people, the heart's desire of religious people, when they practice their faith in public, their desire is to be seen by people. And Jesus is saying, that's not what you ought to do. You ought to not desire to be seen by people but you ought to be desired to be seen by God. So look at verses five through eight really quickly. Five through eight, he, he takes a big portion of explaining to us the right and wrong way of praying. And he says, the wrong way of praying is praying like the hypocrites in the New Testament. Who were the hypocrites? They were the religious leaders of those days. They were the men who, who, who thought they knew it all. They had the right answers for everybody. They knew everything they needed to know for everybody's life, everybody's religious walk. They knew what was best for them and the other people, right? But in their hearts, they were corrupt. In their hearts, they were just people who, who only cared for themselves. And Jesus is warning us, don't be like the hypocrites, right? In fact, Jesus, right, through the power of the, of the word, through Paul and, and other, other writers, actually warns pastors and warns teachers, hey, listen, be careful with the people you allow in your church because it's not the world that you have to be worried about. You have to be worried about the people that come into your church that distort theology, distort doctrine, and they distort the biblical truth. Those are the people you have to worry about because their heart's desire is not to glorify God. Their heart's desire is to glorify themselves. Their heart's desire is to twist the truth and make it palatable or to twist the truth to make it into a gospel that they themselves think it ought to be. And Jesus is saying here, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like them. And interesting enough, in the Jewish community in those days, they prayed all the time. They prayed in the morning, they prayed in the afternoon, and they prayed in the evening. Right? So, so, so the expectation that we have here from Jesus is that you ought to pray 
a true mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ, a person who pursues Jesus is a person who prays, who spends time praying for other people, praying with other people, and praying by themselves. I often question in my own life, I often question people who, who have ideas and thoughts about what I should do or what I think I should do when there are not people who pray. Like you, the, the, the good and righteous person before God, made righteous by him, is the person who pursues him in prayer. And if you're not a person who prays, then, then you have to evaluate in your own heart, in your own heart, your priorities. What stirs your affections? What is your motive? And if you don't have a desire to pray, then what's the motive? What's your heart's desire in not wanting to pray? Is it because you think you don't need it? It's not helpful? You think it doesn't, it doesn't help you in your walk? Or you think that God is sovereign over all? And that, and that we don't need to pray? That whatever he's going to do, he's going to do it? And we don't need to pray? What, what is it that, 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 that causes you to think that prayer is not valuable to you? And Jesus is going to show us that you ought to pray. Right? He doesn't say, if you pray. He doesn't say, if you decide to pray. He's saying, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And, and what did the hypocrites do? Well, this is what they did. They, they misappropriated the purpose of prayer, right? They misappropriated the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to commune with God so that we can be transformed by God. So who's the audience in our prayers? Who's the audience? It's, it isn't me. It isn't you. It's one person. One person alone. The, the purpose of prayer is to talk to one person, and that's Jesus. Right? So, so, so in this passage, what we see, right, in the, end, the last part of verse 5, is that they prayed in the synagogues, and they prayed in the streets to be heard by others. So who was their audience? People. Imagine that. The creator and sustainer of the universe. The person that you're supposed to profess. God. Who provided. Who's given every promise to his people. Who's been faithful to his people. The person that you owe the very breath in your lung. And, and he gives you and invites you to pray to him. And your desire is not to pray to him. Your desire is what? To pray to hear so that people can notice you. I mean, that is, in my opinion, a grave sin. Because, because we refuse to acknowledge the person in which we are in debt to. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't pray so that people can hear you. Now, Jesus also says, when you pray, go into your room and close the door. So is Jesus saying, hey, in verse 6, should we not pray in the church? Should we not have a prayer moment in our service? Should we not pray in our ABF before we start? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. 
We know why. We know that Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't have corporate prayer because Jesus prayed corporately himself. Did he not? When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, did he not tell his disciples, can you not pray with me for one hour? In the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, what did the early church do? They prayed together in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? He, he shows us when you pray, this is what should happen when you guys pray together. So Jesus, it's not saying, hey, we shouldn't pray corporately or we shouldn't pray together. But what Jesus is saying is that you ought to have a private prayer life. You ought to be a person who not only prays with other people, for other people, in the church or at home, in your homeroom, in your ABF, with your spouse, Jesus is saying you should also have a private prayer life where it's just you and him, where you and him can talk, where he can transform you. Notice the two groups that Jesus is talking about. Did you notice that? In verse 6, in five and six, he's talking about the hypocrites that pray in the synagogues and in the streets. And then in verse seven to eight, he talks about the Gentiles and how did the Gentiles pray? They prayed, still showing us, they prayed the incorrect way of praying. Why did they pray the wrong way? Because they prayed, their motivation wasn't to talk to God, their motivation, their longing in their heart wasn't to commune with God. Their longing in their heart was to pray long prayers. And what they believed, right, is that if they prayed long prayers, if, if they can include a lot of eloquent language in their prayer, then their prayers would have been heard. Because remember the Gentiles, they served pagans and they were afraid of other gods and other gods, right? They, they believed that they would be destroyed if they didn't appease the gods. So what did they do? They, they eloquently talked and talked and talked and talked. A good example of this, actually, if you think about it, is in 1 Kings, I forget the reference, but it's when the prophets of Baal were praying and, and the Bible says in the Old Testament, the prophets of Baal kept praying over and over. They kept saying the same thing over and over and over again for a really long time. And nothing happened. And guess what happens? Elijah gets up, calls fire from heaven, and it consumes them. Right? Like that idea of just you're praying and praying and praying, right? It's the person who prays at the dinner table, and it's like, bro, we're here to eat. I'm just joking. No, but, but the idea is this, that, that God knows what you need, so you don't have to feel the burden of having to pray long prayers thinking that God's going to answer your petition because you spent all that time praying. God is just and loving. He knows what you need. So a word, a cry, a sentence is good for him. Now, does that mean, oh, I shouldn't pray for an hour? No, no. It means, it means that you shouldn't think or believe that if I spend a long time praying, God's going to answer my petition because he saw how good and righteous I were in praying a long time. So Jesus is saying, don't be like those people. And then he turns and says, this is how you pray. Now, many people in religious sects have used this 
to be a prayer to recite over and over again like a mantra. I think that Jesus provide us this section to show us a formula, a model. We, we can pray like this, and I want, you, I want to read this um, quote from Charles Spurgeon that I think gives us some insight into this section, right? This, this formula in, in verses 9 through 13. This is what Charles Spurgeon said, a Baptist minister, probably one of the greatest ministers of all time. He said, let the Lord alone be the object of your prayers. Beware of having an eye to the audience. Beware of becoming rhetorical to please the listeners. Prayers must not be transformed into an oblique sermon. What is he saying? He said, hey, pastor, when you're praying, pray to God. Leave the sermon for Sunday. You don't have to be long. It is little short of blasphemy to make devotion an occasion for display. Fine prayers are generally very wicked prayers. In the presence of the Lord of hosts, it ill becomes a sinner to parade the feathers and finery of tawdry speech with the view of winning applause from their fellow mortals. Hypocrites who dare to do this have their reward, but it is one to be dreaded. We may aim at exciting the earnings and aspirations of those who hear us in prayer, but every word and thought must be Godward. That, hear that. Every word that we pray must be Godward. What's the formula that we see in this section? Every single word is directed to who? God. Spurgeon goes on to say, and only so far touching upon the people as may be needful to bring them and their wants before the Lord. This is an amazing part. This is the last word, uh, sentence in this paragraph. Remember the people in your prayers, but do not mold your, suppl your supplications to win their esteem. And this is what he says that I really just stood with me. He says, look up. Look up with both your eyes. What is Spurgeon telling us about prayer? He's saying that our prayers, our words, our thoughts should be completely directed to God. And he uses an illustration, eyes. He says, look up. Don't be concerned about what people say. Don't be concerned about what people think. Be concerned by the living God who hears you. Too many of us are concerned about the opinions of men and we're not concerned by the opinions of God. We stand before our holy God who justified us by the power of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about what people think about us. We don't have to worry about what people say about us. And that I'm preaching to myself because I'm often tempted to think and feel deeply about what people think about me. But I often forget that I stand before a holy God, that I don't stand before man. I stand before him. And when he comes back for me, I have to give an account for what I did, not an account for what people think I should do. So before... Before you start worrying, because you can get anxious. Before you start worrying about what people think, worry about what God thinks. 
Think about that God sits on a throne who's holy and just. And for the people who are concerned about other people, remember that the fingers that you point, God will hold you accountable for things you do. Just as Jesus is going to hold those Pharisees accountable. Don't be like the hypocrites who profess faith, but on the inside they are corrupt. Woe to them. And Jesus is saying, pray like this. Like Spurgeon says, Godward. With your eyes lifted up, don't worry about over here. Worry about him. And then, sorry, I got worked up that the mic, mic is getting messed up. Then it's interesting that he goes and talks about forgiveness. I love this because let me tell you something. The other flip side of everything, right, that we can often feel justified and we can often feel self-righteous, right? That when we look at people who have offended us, we can often say, oh, they did me wrong. And in this passage, Jesus is reminding us, remember, right, that I have forgiven you, that God has forgiven you. And because God has forgiven you, you ought to forgive other people. And when should you forgive? Every time. Even if they hurt you and, and make you feel down. What does Jesus tell the disciples? He says, how many times should I forgive sinners? And he says, 70 times seven. What does 70 times seven mean? It means every time. Why? Because you and I are reminded that he's forgiven us. And he didn't have to, but he did it because he loved us. And because he loved us, we too, in response to other people, should forgive. And then he talks about fasting. Fasting and prayer go hand in hand. Fasting is, is devoting the time and energy that you would devote in eating and, and putting that aside so that you can focus and consecrate yourself before the Lord, asking him to do what he can only do. And, and Jesus is saying, do it in secret. No one needs to know. You don't need to be walking around hunched over. Oh, I'm so hungry. Why are you hungry? Eat something. I'm fasting and it's so hard. It's like, shut up. Go fast. <laughs> Go pray. No one wants to know that you're fasting. Because then you know what? You make us feel bad as we eat Chick-fil-A and now we have to look at you being all depressed. No one told you to come out. <laughs> oh, I'm fasting. I need God to do something. Shut up. <laughs> Sorry, that's my translation. I struggle with this, right? Because Jesus talks about a reward, right? Like a reward when we pray and when we fast. But then I find it interesting that the reward is actually found in the Lord's prayer. And also, if you want to see the reward as explained out explicitly, look at Luke 11. Luke 11 tells us what the reward is. And Luke says this, right? When we pray, we know that we go to a loving father who answers our petitions. Ask and you, wait, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. What good father that gives good gifts to his children won't give him good gifts more? So Luke 11 shows us, right, the blessings and the reward. But I think we can see it here in this passage in the Lord's Prayer. There are five rewards that I think we can see in the Lord's Prayer. The first reward that we have in prayer is this. We are seen 
and we are heard by a God who is a loving father. That's verse nine. Imagine that. That God is not just a deity. He's just not the creator, sustainer of the universe. He is your father, meaning that he loves you like a father loves a child. He knows you like a father knows his child. He's attentive to you like a father is attentive to a child. He, he draws near to you as a father draws near to a father. And Jesus says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's name is holy. So we come to a holy and righteous father who sees us and hears us. I love 1 John 5 and this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. The second reward that we have in prayer and fasting is found in 10. The reward is knowing his will and for it to be done. Your kingdom come and your will be done as earth, on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, right? What, what Jesus is saying, in heaven, God has a perfect will and plan that there are no obstacles against it. And here on earth, because of sin, has corrupted the way we view God's will, how we see God's will, and how we attach and align ourselves to God's will. And what Jesus is saying here, when we pray, we get to know God's will, the way it's known in heaven and here on earth, even with how sin has corrupted us. So he's saying pray, and the reward is to know his will, to know that God's will has been done. We serve us, and listen, we're going to get a little theological. And some of you are going to be rah, rah, rah. Some of you are going to be crazy. We serve a sovereign God. His plans cannot be thwarted by the enemy or sin. But at the same time, Jesus says pray. And he says when you pray, God's going to answer. So somehow, some way, God's sovereignty and, and, and our prayers go hand in hand. So, so when we pray, we pray knowing that God has control over everything. But we also pray knowing Right? That God hears us, God answers us. Those two go hand in hand. And for you hardcore Calvinists out there, you're going to be okay. Breathe in the bag. <laughs> We're going to have prayer partners up here with you. They'll pray over you. Don't worry. The work of John Calvin, I'm sure, is still good. You'll be fine. Breathe. You can email John MacArthur or John Piper if you want. That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. All right. A couple other things. Here's another reward. When we pray and fast, look at verse 11. The reward is that we receive what we need to live in this world. Imagine that. The, the Father who knows us well and hears us gives us everything that we need for life here now. Think about the people of Israel. Think about when they were in the desert. Think about when, where they needed. Think about the logistical things of bringing six million people into a desert. You, you need shelter. You need food. You need systems. You need processes. You need the whole rigmarole. 
And, and, and what does God do? He provides a leader through Moses. He provides the law through the Ten Commandments. He provides manna from heaven. He provides shelter during the day by cloud, fire by night, and his presence in the camp. God gives us everything that we need for life. What are your longings and desires? Is it the big house? Is it the wealth, the prosperity, the health? God has given you everything you need to find joy and contentment in the place that you're in. Do not be discontent with yourself or God because God has not given you the thing that you wanted. Maybe God hasn't given you the thing that you wanted because what he wants more for you is your sanctification and less of your comfort. And if you find yourself at the place of comfort, is comfort your idol? Do you bow down in the name of Jesus to the God of comfort? Because you look at this passage and you say, God, I want more, and not, God, thank you for what you've given me. Another reward that we see is that we receive forgiveness for our sins. Look at verse 12 really quickly and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven. Notice the past tense of forgiven. He doesn't say forgive us of our debts as we also will forgive our debtors. No, what he's saying is this. We have been forgiven and we also have forgiven other people. The, the beauty and reward of prayer is that we can find forgiveness of our sins now. That the thing that we did last night, the thing that we did last mor- uh, yesterday morning, the thing that we did um, a year ago, the thing that we did two years ago, the thing that we did 10 years ago has been forgiven. And because we have been forgiven, we can extend the same grace and mercy to other people. Amen? I think that wasn't a good amen, but we're going to have to talk about forgiveness next week again. Because I've been... The reward is that we forgive, we are forgiven of our sins, and that God continues to forgive us of our sins. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know about you, but I am a doofus. I, no, 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 but, but check this out. Like, I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do. And then I'm often reminded of my past of the things that I never wanted to do. And then the accusations that I, that I feel and I think don't come from the Lord. It comes from myself and the enemy. Because we have been promised forgiveness. And if some of us would just walk in the forgiveness, we would free ourselves of the burdens that we've been carrying for decades. Oh, I wish I should have done this. I wish I could have done that. Walk in the forgiveness. Forget it. He's forgotten it. You think Jesus remembers your sins? That's not the God we serve. I don't know what God you serve. Anyway, I'm going on a tangent today. Last reward. It's the very end. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We receive deliverance from the evils of temptation today. I think of all the times 
And as an illustration, all the times that David kept running away from his enemies because they were pursuing him. And every time God delivered him from his enemies. And in fact, you see in certain Psalms of the, uh, of the Bible, you see David wrote this Psalm when what? God defeated all his enemies. The greatest enemy that you and I have is sin and death. But yet in this present world, you and I are going to struggle with sin. You and I are going to be tempted to do the things that God has ordained not to do. And Jesus is showing us in this passage that we have freedom in Jesus that he will deliver us from those things. Now you may look at that passage and say, oh my gosh, is, is God tempting us? Will he tempt us to sin? No, what does James say? God cannot be tempted. I mean, God cannot tempt us. So, what does temptation in this passage mean? It means, it means a test. It means that we're going to be tested in a fallen and broken world. We're going to be test, tested in our faith. And we have a promise here that we will receive deliverance from our test. And the test is not meant to hurt us. The test is not meant to make us fall. The test is meant to make us strong. Think of a soldier in battle. The strongest, greatest soldiers were not the ones who ran away. The greatest and strongest soldiers were the ones that stood there and fought to the very end. Because they didn't cower away. And that's the same for you and me. We don't cower away from the fear. We don't cower away. We know that we are forgiven we stand the test and we make ourselves strong, not because we willed it, but because God in us has made us strong. Once again, I ask the question, what stirs your affections? What is your motivation? Are you motivated by God's word to be like Jesus? Are you motivated by God's word to be conformed like Jesus? Or are you longing and desiring to be less like Jesus, but a, a better version of yourself? Are you longing to be a better version of yourself? Are you longing and motivated to pray and fast? Are you motivated to do spiritual things because you are well aware of God's power, you are well of God's presence, and you want to be more like him and less like yourself? What are you motivated to do? Jesus says, be motivated to pray and fast. There's a reward. Here's the reward. And you notice the reward has to do with him, his power, and his activity in your life. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you by the power of your spirit to make us like Jesus. God, would you stir our affections towards your son, Jesus. God, that our longings and desires would be to be like your son, Jesus. That when we pray, when we fast, when we do good works, it's not for our fame, not for our glory, but the praise and glory of your son, Jesus. We ask you to do this in Christ's name. We all say? This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website, 
at thechapel.life.